This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Welcome to the show. With the stock market continuing to fluctuate wildly, many Feds wonder what is a wise retirement investment strategy at all. Federal employees and retirees, meanwhile, continue to deal with the website of the Thrift Savings Plan and its difficult or missing functionality. For some insight, I spoke with a successfully retired federal manager, now an investment consultant, Abe Grungold. Let's talk about contributions to retirement accounts in the first place in 2023. What kind of planning should people do now if they're not on some kind of an automatic escalator to how much they do contribute every year? Yeah, Tom, thank you for having me on today. Uh, January is an excellent month to think about your IRA. Even though you're a participant in the TSP as an active federal employee, or if you're a retiree and maybe you're working a few days a week, both people, retirees and active federal employees, should be thinking about contributing to an IRA. And for active employees, if you can afford to do it, you can contribute up to $6,500 a year in a Roth or traditional IRA if you're under the age of 50. And if you're over 50, you can contribute $7,500 to your IRA. But you have to be careful with the Roth IRA because there's a modified adjusted gross income salary limit for those people who are interested in the Roth IRA. There's no limit on those who want to invest in the traditional IRA. Yes, because the Roth is after-tax contributions, right? And so there's an issue of what your tax rate will be later on at the time you withdraw it, and you will presumably have paid taxes on it. But So that's the complicating factor, correct? Yes. The the IRS uh, wants to limit uh, those, well, wants to make it tax available for those who have a income under a certain value to take advantage of the tax deferment. But if you are over those salary limits, that you certainly can still contribute to a traditional IRA. And do we know what those limits are roughly? Yes. For 2022, if you were single, it's 144000 in 2023, if you're single, it's 153000 now. If you're married, in 2022, it was 214000 And in 2023, if you're married, it's 228000 So um, it, it's really for someone who is of the, uh, on, the, on the lower salary scale and they could take advantage of the Roth, but certainly you can contribute to a traditional IRA and whether you're an active federal employee or you're a retiree still working a little bit. Got it. So yeah, those people at the 144,000 or 153 for a single filer, single contributor, that's getting to GS 1415, even the lower ends of the senior executive service. Yes, that's true. Whether you could contribute to the Roth, it's wonderful because it's tax-free when you take the money out. 
But even when I was a federal employee and I was in in that, you know, salary level, I was still contributing to an IRA, whether it was a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. I always took advantage of that because you are just growing your retirement plan even beyond uh, imagination, I hate to say. It, it's just a, something to do, and, and, and you'd be surprised how much money you can save and grow over the years. Right. The old adage, start early and let the magic of compound interest take care of itself. Yes. I, I was in the IRA in uh, 1981, I believe, is when it first came out. And I was not a federal employee then. And then when the Roth IRA came out, I believe in 1997, I was the first person standing in line to convert it because my balance in the IRA was not that large. So, yes, I always contributed to my IRA. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a financial coach and himself a retired federal manager working with clients out of Florida. And let's get to the TSP system itself right now. Six months, seven months in, I guess a lot has improved, but it's still some ways to go. What have you experienced personally recently? Well, you know, it's unfortunate that you know, with with respect to withdrawals, from a personal perspective, I was forced to take a $4,000 withdrawal when I only wanted to take a $2,000 withdrawal, and the minimum is $25 per month. Now, I was recently contacted by two people. One person told me they were told by the TSP that they were forced to take a $7,100 per month withdrawal from their TSP. And the other person was told they had to take a $9,300 withdrawal from the monthly withdrawal from the TSP. And they both were aware that the policy is $25 per month, but they could not convince the TSP representative that they wanted to make a lower monthly withdrawal. I mean, that's one issue. Another issue from a personal standpoint, uh, I received my monthly withdrawal from the TSP and the federal tax withholding went up $146 for that month. And I couldn't find any information on that. I looked the entire TSP website, couldn't find any information regarding the increased federal withdrawal. I didn't receive anything in the mail, so I called the TSP representative. And after 30 minutes of searching, he said there was a system-wide change regarding the federal withdrawal, and I have a married status, and that was changed to single status. And he asked me if I wanted to correct it. I said, no, don't correct it. I don't want to take the chance of it getting fouled up. But... A friend of mine who is a retiree from the government, he called me that very same day and he told me that he had an increase of a federal withholding of $85 per month. Now, he's already single, so why did his federal withholding uh, go up? No one could explain it. It's just they always say it's a system-wide change. Interesting. Without any explanation. And yeah, this friend uh, has this friend has not married your wife, to your knowledge. 
<laughs> so, no. so no one's. No, tr- we were we were coworkers, and he's been a retiree for ten years now. And uh, he contacted me immediately, and, and he said that he couldn't understand it. But he did request a correction. I said, good luck. Uh, you know, I don't know what can happen with something like that. So, uh, and, and then the third issue, I hate to say, when I was on hold waiting for the TSP representative, I kept listening to the message that they keep playing over and over again. And they were saying that, The TSP is going to make required minimum distributions for participants if they haven't made them or they're required to make them. They're going to make them on their behalf and send out a paper check in the mail, which this is 2023. This is the worst mistake that the TSP can make. Medicare does not send out a, a paper check. Any other uh, agency does not send out a paper check. So they need to have the participant sign up for a direct deposit specifically for RMD. And in the event that a participant forgets to make their RMD, at least that if the TSP does it for them, it's going to the right place because to send out a paper check and, you know, it could be stolen from the mail. It could be sitting in a mailbox because people have multiple homes or they're on extended vacations. And if they're not aware that that check is coming, it's going to be a nightmare for some participants. But for those just to play devil's advocate that are of the age where they have to make the required minimum withdrawal isn't it a good thing that it's calculated for them and automatically goes out yes that's that is a wonderful thing that the tsp is doing that step for them because it's a little difficult to figure out when is the proper time to take it exactly how much you have to withdraw and that changes each year but simply have the participant in the tsp set up a direct deposit just like they set up direct deposit for their monthly withdrawals. It's just there in the event that it has to be sent out. Uh, You don't want a paper check sitting in the mail. Sure. So you do have that capability at the TSP site, though, to enter the data to get it electronically uh, deposited. Yes. Yes. It's very simple to do. I did it uh, for my own monthly withdrawal. It took five minutes to do And when you said that they told you that they were going to take out more than you wanted to take out each month, were they, in effect, trying to get you to your required minimum distribution automatically, or are you there yet? No, no, not at all. I'm far from that point, and this is totally uh, a separate issue. Federal withholding, You, when you make a monthly withdrawal in your first annuity or when you make a month, monthly uh, withdrawal in your TSP, you do have to take out some uh, federal withholding. No, this is totally a separate issue from RMD. And uh, I don't mind taking federal taxes out of my TSP withdrawal, but at least notify me ahead of time that this is going to happen. They, you know, this is 2023. They have an electronic message uh, capability to send out a system-wide 
message to everyone. Uh, federal withdrawal is going to be changing in 2023. Be on the lookout. So when you get that deposit, you're saying to yourself, oh, okay, I see a slight difference. Now I understand what that is. Communication is really the key here. And for those people that were having 7,100 withdrawn, not taxes, but the withdrawal from the TSP or 9,300, were those attempts to get to that minimum withdrawal? Or it seems like no. a lot of money to pull out, 10,000 a month. Both of these people that I mentioned, the $7,100 monthly withdrawal, the 9300 monthly withdrawal, both of them were in their early 60s, and they are new retirees. So they are retiring from federal service. They want to start taking a little bit out of their TSP each month. And normally people take out a couple percentage or a couple thousand dollars, and uh, they both communicated to me that their plan was just to take out a few thousand dollars per month. Certainly not those numbers. And those numbers just didn't make any sense. And and each of them did tell me what their balance was, but it just didn't make any sense to me how the TSP even came up with those numbers. And the issue is you can't change it very easily. No, you cannot change it easily. I tried to change mine. And the module doesn't allow you to make that change. You have to call up the TSP representative, cancel your monthly withdrawal, and then create a new monthly withdrawal. So there is a possibility that you may go a month without receiving a monthly withdrawal from your TSP. That is just not a good system. It should be easily to go in to say, look, you're taking out three thousand dollars a month i want to change it to thirty five hundred dollars a month or i want to change it to twenty five hundred dollars a month it's still going to the same place and they're still taking out uh federal withholding so why is it complicated to just make a uh calculation change it should be very simple you can do it on other websites and you know i i can mention some websites but, you know, it's not necessary. But you can certainly do it on other websites when you're getting monthly withdrawals or quarterly withdrawals, and you can make those changes easily. Abe Grungold is a financial coach and retired federal manager. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. Have a good day. We'll pause here for a short break, and when we return, we'll hear from Kathy Harris, the chairwoman of the Merit Systems Protection Board on the prevalence of sexual harassment in the federal workforce. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. The Merit Systems Protection Board spent years compiling data on sexual harassment inside federal agencies. It found that 21% of women and 9% of men have experienced sexual harassment. That report was ready to go back in 2018, but without a quorum, the law prohibited the board from publishing it. Until now. The board says not much has changed anyhow. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman discussed this with MSPB Chairwoman Kathy Harris sexual harassment continues to be pernicious and pervasive. We know from our research that the phenomenon of sexual harassment 
is still being perceived by federal employees at work and the impacts of sexual harassment on employees, the organization and mission accomplishment are persistently negative. Probably not that much of a surprise, but we thought it's part of our mission and duty to report on these matters and and we want to continue to do so. One contribution that we think would be useful for agencies is to provide practical recommendations, as well as suggestions for employees to better prevent and respond to sexual harassment. None of these suggestions are that genius, frankly. They're pretty obvious, but worth reminding, and we we feel that they would be effective. One is to communicate fair and effective policies and practices to employees at all levels. Anti-harassment should be codified in policy documents and made understandable through training. Employees should be well-versed on the rights and responsibilities and have confidence that those who commit sexual harassment will be held accountable. We suggest agency leaders and supervisors should model these policies and practices to ensure appropriate behavior in the workplace. We encourage targets of harassment to report these behaviors and provide support that they need through the process, communicate cultural support for employees to maintain healthy work environments and taking actions to report and stop sexual harassment, and uh, finally, to allocate sufficient funding to ensure that sexual harassment prevention programs are are there for agencies, that alleged harassment can be fairly and expeditiously investigated, and so that agencies take appropriate corrective action, prompt and immediate action to prevent further harm and deter future misconduct. If we can just dive a little bit more into the report itself, one of the things I found kind of telling was that the the data showed that a lot of federal employees will, at least from this older report, they'll take informal channels a lot of the time to deal with sexual harassment. And in contrast, just 11% will actually file a complaint. So in terms of, I guess, the recommendations you have for agencies, is there any way to shift the way that employees might be dealing with sexual harassment? And what does that reveal about the way agencies are handling it right now? I think one interesting finding from the report was that a lot of employees felt that once they reported harassment, things got worse, which to me means that the avenues of reporting are not resulting in effective corrective action. It can mean a variety of things. It can mean they, uh, employees perceive that they're being retaliated against after they've reported it. It can mean that they've reported it, but nothing's done, nothing changes. From our recommendations, I think that adequate funding to make sure the investigations are done fairly, thoroughly, and expeditiously, and that corrective action is taken promptly and effectively, I, I think that will help hopefully provide more confidence in employees' willingness to report through formal channels, right? So if they're reporting and nothing's changing, nothing's working, why are they, or if it indeed gets worse, what, you know, what's the incentive? Another part of the the report that I found pretty telling or even surprising was that there's kind of a contrast between how employees view their agencies when you break it down between those who have actually experienced harassment and those who have not. For example, those who did not experience harassment, 64% said they were confident that a charge of sexual harassment would be resolved, quote, fairly and justly. For that same question, if someone has experienced harassment, only 35% 
were confident that it would be resolved that way. So I think that to me kind of implies that the people who have actually been through the process are, you know, less confident in it. Is there something agencies can do? Is it sort of a lead by example or what, what, are, what would you recommend to agencies to try to instill more confidence in that system to resolve those cases? Employees who are going through that process experience harassment and then finding that nothing has changed or things get worse is really demoralizing and, and upsetting and also not in line with the agency's legal responsibilities, if that's what in fact is happening. You know, I practiced law before coming to this position and represented many, many federal employees who experienced sexual harassment. And, you know, my anecdotal experience is consistent with the findings in this report, which is that I think that when federal agencies do a good job of investigating matters fairly, and then that's followed up by agency leaders actually taking the appropriate action, that is hugely effective. It helps. I think there's breakdowns in the processes both at the investigative stage and at the corrective action stage. And employees need to feel more confident that the agencies will be following through. And I think one of the recommendations, agency leaders modeling that they're following the policies and doing things to help showing employees, you know, we don't just care. We're not just giving you training, but we're actually following through when there are violations of our policy. We're doing the right thing. I think that that says a lot and that helps the next employee who comes along with a complaint, uh, you know, about another matter will say, oh, I saw them do this and, and really help this other person out and, and got rid of the problem or corrected the harassment or, you know, what, what, there's a, a wide variety of things that agencies can do. But modeling from the top down is, is hugely important. Part of the problem with employees being hesitant to go through a formal filing of a complaint is just the time that it takes to get through. I mean, it takes an average of over three and a half years. That's from day one of filing the case versus getting action taken on it in the end. And in the meantime, if you're the employee, you're, you're still in that situation oftentimes. What can agencies do to either encourage employees to take that path if it's necessary? Or is there anything in that long window of time that agencies can help those employees to try to mitigate the issue? Thank you for asking that question. It absolutely takes way too long. And no one should have to wait three and a half years or anywhere near that time to get relief from sexual harassment. That's not what the statute anticipates, and that's just not good business. Uh, that's not the way to retain good employees, and that's not the way to manage a workforce. So I see this really primarily as a resources issue. Agencies need to be making sure they have the adequate number of investigators to conduct their investigations of harassment. They need to make sure they have adequate resources to take corrective action. They need to be thinking about the length of time it takes and doing everything they can to expedite it. There's a lot of good reasons for agencies to resolve sexual harassment complaints at a very early stage. For example, at the informal EEO stage, you know, if that doesn't happen, then the process can take a very long time. 
agencies should be putting more resources into that informal complaint stage. Why aren't cases resolving at that stage? Why are they proceeding to the formal complaint stage? Why are they proceeding to a report of investigation? Why are employees forced to file at the EEOC? And to try to expedite and provide adequate, early, thorough, complete investigations so that they can do the right thing as quickly and promptly as possible, which is what the law requires, prompt and corrective action. Aside from these reports, both this one on sexual harassment and just others that you have coming up, something else that just the MSPB has had to put on hold and recently picked back up is just a quite sizable case backlog, which at its height was 3,500 cases in pending. Uh, That was back in last March. So can you tell me a little bit about What's been your strategy for prioritizing cases, trying to expedite that process, and how much have you gotten through by this point? Since the quorum has been restored in March, the board has decided over 800 cases. And most of the decided cases involve petition for reviews, which is kind of the traditional appeal that comes up to the board level. But the board has also decided other headquarters level cases, such as non-compliance cases with settlements or orders or uh, requests for regulation review. So a lot of cases, more to come. We've also issued final orders in over 70 cases that involved a settlement agreement. A settlement is one way for parties to resolve their differences without relying on the board to get it right. As one of my favorite mediators always said, You know, the best settlement is one that the parties come up with and both sides walk away miserable. Um, I don't believe that. I think there's ways for people to get to creative settlements in in a positive manner and for both sides to be happy. So that's, that's what we're looking for. The board recently announced a pilot program, which we call RAMP, PFR RAMP, which targets particular categories of petitions for review for rapid mediation. And the mediators assigned to that program have been actively identifying cases that are candidates for the program and have already held or scheduled mediation in more than 100 cases. We've issued 48 precedential decisions since the quorum was restored. And these precedential decisions resolve significant matters involving whistleblower reprisal, discrimination, and back pay, amongst other important topics. And the hope is by trying to get our precedential decisions out, that will help filter down and make uh, other decisions easier to decide. So in terms of what's our strategy going forward, our performance goals for this fiscal year are to decide at least a thousand cases, including at least 750 of the oldest cases that were pending before the board as of October 1st. So basically trying to reduce that inherited inventory oldest to newest, but also not ignoring other cases that, you know, may come before us that are, you know, every case is important. So we want to make sure that we we do as best we can uh, to get them out as quickly, but fairly uh, and thoroughly as possible. You know, everybody wants to know how long is it going to take, right? And if we do a thousand cases a year, it will take us about three years to get through the inherited inventory. There'll be new cases coming in, right? But to get rid of that inventory, that inherited inventory that came in when we came in about three years, but I'm hoping we can go even faster than that. 
Kathy Harris, chairwoman of the Merit Systems Protection Board, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.